Welcome again to Seven Mile Road. Really happy that you're here. Um, thanks, Jocelyn, for reading from Matthew for us this morning. If you've been following the news recently, uh, you know that the presidential campaign and debates are well underway, and there's a lot of drama and politics that go along with it, and so the, the race is heating up. And countries tuned in, CNN, Fox News, NBC, all of them are covering these candidates and watching them as they do their thing. And so for me, uh, when you talk about the presidential office, it's sort of a sensitive subject for me because when I was in fourth grade, um, class just was finishing up and I was in history class and Miss Unrath was talking about this office of the presidency and she painted it in such a beautiful way and so she inspired me by the end of the class to run for office, to run for the presidency of the United States. And so with great glee and great confidence that this is something I could do, stayed after school to help her out and just to talk with her about my newly found aspirations that's lasted for about an hour. And so I talked to her, I'm like, Miss Unrath, I really feel like I could do this. I think I, can, I think I can make this happen. And you can sense some sort of curiosity and doubt in her mind as she's uh, engaging me. So her next question to me is, no problem, that sounds great, pal. Um, you were born in America, right? And I'm like, no, I wasn't born in America. Confidently like, no, I wasn't born here. Why do you ask? And so her next move is to go over to a bookshelf, grab a textbook, open up to the page of requirements to be a US president, and she points to the part where you've got to be a US citizen and naturally born in America, and my hopes are just crushed. They're completely crushed and destroyed. And she knew it all along. She just didn't want to tell me directly. She had to pull out a textbook to tell me. And so it was uh, the presidency, all this talk of a leader and all that's kind of a sore subject for me. But wherever you are in politics, wherever you are in viewing leadership and all of those things, whatever side of the aisle you're on, you can at least understand and agree that this office of the presidency, it's a big deal. I mean, you, you get to be commander-in-chief. You get to rule the, the ruler of the free world. You get to not only have influence and power here in America, but also abroad in foreign affairs. Right? So there's no doubt that that's, that's true and that the office of the presidency is a big deal. And so if you were to stop just to think for a moment, I was listening to a preacher this weekend. If you think, right now existing in history, right, in the present time right now, um, there's probably three or four presidents who are alive right now under the age of 18, and we just don't know that they are there yet, right, because they're young. And they're probably from teenage all the way down to infancy, there's probably a couple of presidents sort of growing up and, and learning and being inspired at the age of 10 to become a president. Right? But no one's seeking them out. No one's looking for where they are. Why? Because we, we simply don't have that information. Right? We don't know who these people are. But what if we actually gained some knowledge and somehow we found out there's a few people who are going to eventually be the president of the United States? What would happen? Right? We, would, we would seek them out. Press would be at their front door right now. Right? There would be secret service detail assigned to them. Right? We'd follow their lives from infancy all the way into adulthood and into their campaign, and we'd be following every movement of theirs. It's similar to how when you know, Prince George and Pr Princess Charlotte of the royal British family have come into the world recently, all of our eyes were glued to the news and watched as they came into the world. Right? There, there's something momentous about that, knowing that. And so in, in the passage that was read today in Matthew, Something similar is sort of starting to brew. There's, there's news hitting the press, and in Jerusalem, there's some news brewing, right? 
Except it's not just a president, it's not just a dignitary. Right? This person is actually no ordinary person at all. Right? He's in fact the king that puts an end to all kings, to all rulers, to all dignitaries. He is the king. Right? The king who when he comes, everything changes. Right? He, he's a king who makes a difference. He establishes peace. He rids sin. He vanquishes death. Right? Not just for a city, not just for a small town or just for one group of people or a country. But you're talking about everything changing for all people of all time, changing the course of history for eternity. Right? So this morning as we consider Matthew and his words for us, recounting this great event as news of Jesus coming begins to spread, what we find is that the story actually doesn't really turn out the way that we would expect And so as we consider Matthew and we hear him recounting this story, let's ask the Lord for his blessing over our time together and for us to hear from him this morning. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Lord, what great news it is that you have come to this earth. Uh, We pray that in this time together this morning uh, that you would speak to us. We, We confess that the words and phrases of men have No power, but you, O Lord, have infinite power. So without clever speech or without any wisdom of man, we pray that your wisdom and that the truth of God would be made known today. You can transform our lowly hearts that are worn down and tired and weak. You can cause our clouded vision to be made clear by your Spirit. And you can rid us of our sin and death and hopelessness. You can do all of this because you have to earth. And so our hope is in you. Our lives are dependent on you. So would you speak to us now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So we're in Matthew uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12 today. It's the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel uh, that we find in the New Testament. You can find it on page 870 in your black Bibles in front of you. So if you would, turn with me there and we'll consider this text together. So as you turn there, there there are several characters to consider in this story. And there's a lot happening. Right, so to help us sort of understand and give us a roadmap of how we'll consider this text, here's how we'll approach the text. So verses 1 to 2, we'll consider how the wise men seek. Right, verses 3 to 6, we'll see how King Herod seeks. Verses 7 to 8, how King Herod responds. And then we'll go back to the wise men at the end, how they respond. All right, so let's, let's start at verse 1, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. Uh, So right from the start, right, we're in Christmas season, sort of probably going to burst some bubbles and uh, change some ideas of this Christmas event that we probably have made. So in Christmas carols, you hear, you know, the, these three kings of Orient, right? The reality is that we actually have no idea if there were three of them, sort of just inferred. We have no idea where they're actually from. They're not even kings, right? Who these people were were not even kings. And so we don't know much about them, uh, but there are some pointers that might give us some hints as, as to who they are. And so uh, as we think about these wise men, they're also called magi, right? They probably have come from the east, probably from about a thousand miles away. 
Right? They're what we might call in today's time, in modern time, astrologers, right? people who study the stars and look to the heavens to understand the world and the future and what's going on in life. And so in those days, unlike ours today, these guys were actually the wise men. Right? They were the people who were counselors to kings and rulers. They were the ones who advised on issues of life and, and of, of politics and all of these things. They were in religious circles and in politics. Right? And so the text, as, as it goes on, it doesn't tell us how they know, but it tells us that a star arose and they believed it was a star that led to the newly born king of Jews. Right? So we don't know exactly how they knew that, but somehow God was working and they knew that this star was leading to the newly born king of the Jews. Right? It was Jesus. And so in that time, for those who studied the stars, any time a new star rose up, it signified that someone really important had just come into, uh, come into the world. And so going off of this, they start their journey. And so we, we hear stories like this, and even Christmas time can feel like, you know, it's just a story. Why would you take any of this seriously? It's just to give us some, uh, some seasons of, of happiness and joy. Right? It could sort of sound bogus that, that a star would rise up and lead someone to Jesus. Right? But what's interesting in this scripture is in other places of the scriptures, right? astrology, the study of stars, is actually condemned. Right? It's not as if the scriptures are for this study. And so commentators have said, if that's true, and if you're trying to uh, convince people of this truth, right, that Jesus came and was born into the world, why would you ever include this account in the scriptures? Right? Wouldn't people, when they hear this, just dismiss it anyways, because astrology is, is not something that, that the scriptures condone? Right? Wouldn't, wouldn't you change the story or alter it to make it more palatable and, and easy to digest? And so what we're saying is, that, that could be true, but, but the only thing is, you would not include that or you would take it out unless it was actually true, right? Why wouldn't the writers of these stories take some of these uh, fantastical events out unless they actually happened, right? It's not as if God actually condones astrology, but that somehow, as God, right, he seems fitting to descend to their pagan practice so that their antennas are up, right? So they're looking at the stars and they see God working and God wielding creation itself so that they might be led to Jesus, right? And that's not the only curious thing about this scene. Uh, many of us are used to the carols and we even read this passage of Scripture often and sort of the, the way the original hearers experience this, this text gets lost on us because we're so far removed. But if you would think, uh, when the king of kings, right, when Jesus arrives, uh, what would you expect? What do you think they expected? Right? Th this is the one who was promised. So you would, uh, for a long time, promise to come and save. And so you would expect opulence. This king is coming. You would expect festivity and, and a, mag a magnificent and majestic procession. Right? Lights and horns and all kinds of colors bringing in the reign of Jesus, the newborn king. But what do you actually get? Right? You, get you get nothing. You get zilch. You don't get any of that. Right? Instead, you have Jesus born into an unimpressive town in ragged conditions to parents who by his very birth have been already mired in scandal. Right? With an audience, as we considered last week, of shepherds who are least respected in that time. Jesus, when you, when you think about Jesus himself, he didn't even have the right credentials, right? He was born to a carpenter. 
never led anything significant in his life, and was not even physically impressive, right? To the point that the scriptures say he had no form or majesty that we should even look at him, right? No beauty that we should have any desire of him. And so what you would also imagine as you think through this is, right, he's the coming king to the, to the Jews, the king of the Jews. You would imagine that the Jewish and the religious elite are rushing and going to be there to, the, to be the first to encounter this new king who has come into the world. But instead, what do you get? Right, the scene that we see is that instead of that, you get these outsider, unbelieving, pagan astrologers who are led by a star. It's as if God goes to great lengths to show that Jesus, the single most influential person in the world in history, even till now, did it all wrong. Did everything wrong according to the standards of the world and according to the standards of religion. Right? His modus operandi is the complete opposite of what you would expect, what the world would have expected and valued and fashioned for his arrival, for his life, and the people that he came to. Right, consider that. If you were to take an inventory of your own life, right, just to consider uh, the profile of your life, who, what makes you you, or your wealth, or perhaps your looks, the families that you were born into, right, your influence, your material comforts, your education, your job, or consider your physical condition and health. All of these things that sort of identify and define us in some sense, right? Some of us, as we think through that inventory of things, uh, would feel really, really, really content. Like, all right, we've, we've got a lot of that together. And, and yet some of us would feel like just sad and depressed and unhappy that all those things don't really measure up to the standards of the world, right? And so you might have an inventory that looks very different and all messed up and muddied. But the wonderful thing is that Jesus came into this world and what he does is completely shatters the standards by which we consider ourselves and one another worthy and respectable. Right? What these wise men tell us is that Jesus has not just come for the Jewish people, for the people who have it all together, who are perfect and have no sin, without any shortcoming or baggage, but he's come for me, an outsider, a pagan, a sinner, a, a guy with a lot of baggage and with a lot of mess, and I'm within his scope. I'm within the view of Jesus. And so Seven Mile Road, these wise men would be in really good company here today with us. What good company this is, because when we consider who Jesus has gone to, he goes to the broken. He goes to the, to the sinners and the thieves, the doubters and the seekers, the people who don't have their lives put together, even if we think we do. He comes to those who are broken. And so he comes to ragged people like us, into a broken city like ours, even broken families that we have, and situations that are just hard. And he comes to us, right? We who should have been on the outside are brought in like these wise men by the Almighty God. One preacher said it this way. Why did Matthew, first of all, put unclean, uncircumcised, disobedient astrologers on their faces before King Jesus in worship? He did it for the same reason that he ended his gospel. Because if you go later on in Matthew, this is how the gospel ends. To go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And this commentator says, to make disciples of all astrologers. Right, to bring all people to himself. And so, as these wise men, the people you don't expect to travel far to see Jesus, right, they travel through desert and heat over a thousand miles to seek him. 
Uh, but what's even more surprising is that the response of the religious leaders that you would expect to go and seek him, who actually live five miles away from him in Bethlehem, they, their response is shocking. And so let's consider that next. Reading from verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And so what you see is Herod starts to get wind of this, this news of these wise men seeking Jesus, the king of the Jews, and he's troubled, right? So we'll consider that in a moment. But we also see that all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Why do you think Jerusalem was troubled with him? Because wouldn't you imagine that this Jewish nation would welcome Jesus, this Messiah who's come to rescue them? Because if you go back just one chapter in Matthew 1, the chapter right before this one, this is the one whom they have been waiting for. Right? You look at the genealogy and the, the, the lineage of Jesus, and this, this guy is the one they've been waiting for. Right? If you look before, uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 600 years have gone by, and they have not had a king because the, the most recent one just fell into disgrace, and they're without a king. Right? And so they've been waiting, and here is Jesus born in the town of David itself who has come as a king of the Jews, as the king of the Jews. And so you can almost sense Matthew's excitement as he's writing, right? Uh, telling these readers, look, Messiah has come. Jesus, the king who will ascend the to the throne of David, has come to save us. All of our waiting is over. right? But instead of excitement, instead of all of the rush of excitement that would come with that news, what do they do? They are troubled along with Herod. Because I think if you consider for a moment who these Jewish people are, they, they know their scriptures, right? They know what the Old Testament says. And they're saying to themselves, okay, so you're telling me there's a child who has just been born. He's a threat to Herod's kingdom. And now Herod is troubled because of it. Right? Because if you consider, they know this story all too well. Because there was a similar king, Pharaoh of the Old Testament, who when he was threatened and needed to deal with a newborn baby boy, he massacred and drowned all of these infants, these, these boys, because he felt threatened. And so potentially with this, this thought of killing all of these, these boys, he was going to end, end the life of Moses, the future deliverer of Israel. And so the fears of Herod's people are justified, and even more so because when you think of Herod's life, right, in the New Testament, he has already killed numerous wives, assassinated two of his sons, and has even put a hundred members of his senate to death, all because they were a threat to his kingdom, and they thought, and he thought they were going to overthrow him, and so they have good reason to fear, and even more so as you continue reading on. Because when you go a few verses in, you actually realize what Herod does is he tries to do the same thing and kill every boy under the age of two years old in Bethlehem so that he might snuff out Jesus and kill him. Right? The emperor Caesar Augustus at, at that time was famous to have said, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Because that's how vicious Herod was. No one was safe under this king. And so hearing this news of this newborn king what does Herod do? Reading on from verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, 
are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod assembles all of these folks together to make sense of what these wise men have said. And what does he find? What does he find as he does some more searching? These teachers, they tell him that Jesus is in Bethlehem, right? And not just that, but that he's actually the real deal. What, what do they actually tell him? He actually, they quote prophecy from 2 Samuel 5 and Micah 5 that tell him of Jesus coming to actually take the throne. That he's the one true ruler and shepherd of Israel. Right From the fall of man in Genesis 3, all the way through the Old Testament, the prophecies and all of that, all of that has been in waiting for this Messiah that has now come. Right, And so you read Micah 5.2. If you continue reading this prophecy that these teachers are talking about, what else is mentioned is that you see this Messiah, this ruler, comes forth from old, from ancient days. Right? So what does that mean? It's coming from ancient days. What they're trying to say is that this prophet, this king, this, this new Messiah that's coming into the world, he's actually a pre-existing king. Right? He existed before the foundations of the world. He's not just coming into being in the womb of his mother, but he existed far before that, into eternity past. Right? His origins are from long before. When you consider the life of Herod, he was an appointed king. He was not even a Jew, a pure Jew. And yet this king is not appointed by any earthly power, but he was born as king and existed like that from eternity past. And Think of these teachers as they're telling this to Herod. You'd imagine that they would be growing in excitement as well as they realize who this newborn child is. You'd imagine that they're getting all their traveling arrangements ready, right? To make the trek to Bethlehem and seek out Jesus. Just five miles down the road. But what you find, as we're realizing with the story, there's another surprise. They do nothing. There's no further action by these religious leaders. Right? They simply say these earth-shattering truths about their Messiah, about the son of David, pre-existing the eternal king, and they roll up their scrolls and they head on home. Right? They just get on with life. Commenting on these religious leaders, the great theologian Charles Spurgeon says this, These scribes knew where to find the text about the Savior's birth, and they could put their finger upon the spot in the map where he should be born. And yet they knew king. Neither cared to seek him out. May it never be my case to be a master of scriptural geography, prophecy, and theology, and yet to miss him of whom the scriptures speak. Right? These teachers, these, these religious leaders, they knew what all of this meant, but they don't go out to find him. Right? I think some of us may be able to identify with this, to fall into this dangerous trap of loving the stories of the Bible, right? Or even loving these, these Christmas times, these holiday seasons, right? We love the Christian faith and sort of the system of, of belief and the theology and the doctrine and the argumentation, the mystery, the philosophy of it all. And what we can often do is we can mistake love for the Christian faith for love for Jesus, right? And those two things are worlds apart, Right? It's like these religious leaders have a picture of Jesus, a sonogram of, of Jesus. Right? They're looking at the picture. All the while, Jesus is right before them, and all they can do is stare at this picture. Right? And they care nothing for the actual person. Right? 
And so it is possible for us to know great things about God and yet know nothing of him at all. May this not be our religion here. We, we value theology. We value intense reading of the scriptures and study of the scriptures here. But may none of those things not ever not point us to Jesus. May the only thing that does point us to our Savior, King Jesus, right? And so let's continue to read as Herod responds in verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And so if you're, if you're sort of paying attention closely to his words, uh, how does Herod actually respond in, in the words that he just said to the wise men? Right? In secrecy, he's brought them in, telling them that he wants to seek Jesus out as well so that he might worship him as well. But we know from the story of what's about to happen a few verses later in verse 16 that Herod has no intention of worship. Right? And so his response is deception. Right? He, he fears losing power. He fears losing autonomy of pleasure and glory and honor. Herod is scared to death that this young child will threaten his position and change his entire life. He's scared to death of that. And so as we consider, again, the, what Herod's thinking, right? We can begin, I think, to see Herod in, our, in ourselves. Right? Because if what Matthew is saying is true, then everything changes. Right? We would no longer be the rulers of our throne. Jesus would be. Right? And this is completely antithetical to what the world tells us, especially today in our culture where we have Facebook and we've got selfies and everything sort of revolves around us and we think life centers on us. Hear this excerpt from a book by um, an author named Rhonda Byrne titled The Secret. Hear this with me. You are God in a physical body. You are spirit in the flesh. You are eternal life expressing itself as you. You are a cosmic being. You are all power. You are all wisdom, intelligence, perfection, magnificence. You are the creator and you are creating the creation of you on this planet. The earth turns on its orbit for you. The oceans ebb and flow for you. The birds sing for you. The sun rises and sets for you. The stars, they come out for you. Every beautiful thing that you see and experience is there for you. Take a look around. None of it can exist without you. No matter who you thought you were, now you know the truth of who you are. You are the master of the universe. You are the heir to the kingdom. You're the perfection of life. And now you know the secret. Right? It says if Herod wrote this himself. Right? I'm barely able to not burn down the house making bacon in the morning. I literally almost did that last week. And this lady's telling me that I'm magnificence and I'm perfection, that the world revolves around me. I mean, it's, it's crazy that, that we are the masters of the universe, that we are God in a physical body. And yet, this is what the world tells us all the time, right? That life is about us. It's about us holding on to power and pursuing happiness for ourselves and being successful, and that's the only goal, and everything that matters is centered around us. Right? It might be surprising for you to know that this was a bestseller in 2006. It sold nearly 20 It was translated to 46 languages. 
And people ate this up because it gave them meaning, it gave them purpose, and it gave them value in a life that often feels like it has no meaning, right? And so I think while we probably would never say the words like Rhonda or act so extreme and violent like Herod, I think we care more about sitting on our thrones than we probably think. Right? Whether you're a Christian or not, I think many of us can feel like our pleasure, our happiness, our earthly glory and success is what matters most. Right? When someone or something like Jesus comes in to threaten any of that, we retreat back into ourselves and we don't conform or change. We hold on to the armrest of our thrones, we shackle ourselves into the seat, right? and we refuse to step down off of the throne. Like Herod, we care more about saving our throne than about saving our souls. And for some of us, I, I think it's, it's easy to even fake it, right? To be a, a false worshiper of God. Uh, Jesus becomes just sort of a means to an end, right? He's the pathway to get what we want, right? Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the 1700s, says this. This is the difference between the joy of the hypocrite and the joy of the true saint, The true saint rejoices in God, have their minds inexpressibly pleased and delighted with the sweet ideas of the things of God, and that is the spring of all their delights. But the hypocrite first rejoices that they are made so much of by God, and then on that ground, God seems in a sort lovely to them. Right? If God makes much of us, Right? If he keeps life comfortable, if he opens doors, brings in the money, and steers us clear of suffering and sickness, then that sounds, that sounds pretty good. Right? If, I can, if that could be my God, I will follow because I get what I want. But if Jesus himself, right, if the person of Jesus is not enough for us, right, regardless of our gains and our losses, regardless of our sadness and our joy, What I want to ask is for us to pause and ask ourselves, am I following Jesus or am I following something else? Right? Take a moment and just ask yourself, right, if this sickness stays with me all of my days, right, is Jesus enough? Right, if money has forever been a struggle for me and it forever will, where where getting meals on the table seems like it's, it's a question every night, will Jesus be enough? If all of my riches, everything that I've acquired, my house, my savings, my retirement, my kids' college savings, right? My job, the things that we've built up for so long. If all of those things were taken away, will Jesus be enough? If friends and family and society all abandon us for following Jesus or distance us for following Jesus, is it still worth it to follow him and will he be enough? And I think as we start to ask some of those questions to ourselves, we start to realize there's a lot of things that I value more than Jesus. I've I've found that myself this week as I've wrestled with who's on the throne of my life. And so as we continue reading, as the wise men respond, I hope that these verses and these closing verses would be an encouragement and instructive for us this morning. Reading from verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly 
with great joy. And so for a moment, just consider again the journey of these wise men until this point, right? Here are these pagan outsider Gentile astrologers who God has been pursuing, right? They've left their families, their cities, their jobs, their city to follow a star for probably a thousand miles and for several months to foreign lands just to find Jesus, right? They've committed themselves to this. And they've risked their lives, even with King Herod, right? They considered that they went up to King Herod, this oppressive king and violent king. They literally are asking, where is the king of the Jews to the king of the Jews, right? As like a slap in the face, we want to see the king of the Jews. And so with a great risk to them, they follow this star that leads to Jesus. And so as they follow it, what happens next? It suddenly stops. Right? The this, this star that they've been following that's leading to Jesus now suddenly stops and rests over the house where Jesus was. Right? These, just as a star could, couldn't stop until it found the house where Jesus was, so the hearts of these wise men, they couldn't stop until they found the house of where the Lord was. And so could you imagine their, do- their joy, their delight? Right? Hundreds of miles, several months later, the star supernaturally rests over where the place where Jesus is. Right? If they didn't believe that God was guiding them to this point, wouldn't you imagine that now like God is wielding creation and the stars so that these pagans, these men might find Jesus? And joy is exactly what they felt. Verse 9 sort of overemphasizes what they are feeling when they see the star. It says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Right? They haven't even seen Jesus. And they are already rejoicing. So now what happens? Right? They see the house. Their hearts are pounding. Their anticipation is growing. Their souls rejoicing. They walk up to the front door, walk into the house, and there's Jesus. And what happens next? These wise men, they come undone. Right? What does verse 11 say? And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They see Jesus. And they fall flat on their faces in worship and adoration. And oh, that our hearts might worship Jesus like these unexpected pagan astrologers worship him, right? Before even seeing Jesus, the excitement to come into the house where he is and to see him, right? And that's, the thing is that these men were not perfect. They were wrecked. They, they were sinful. They weren't even religious people, right? And yet, here is God, holy, perfect in the flesh, in the, in the person of Jesus. God, the creator and sustainer of the world, infinitely powerful, right? Now being made so low, right? To be confined to earth, within a city, within a home, within a human body, being worshipped by irreligious sinners. Right? How is this possible? I remember going about 10 years ago to Canada to see the Niagara Falls. And if you've ever been there, you know what that site looks like. When you, when you watch the falls sort of from above ground and you're watching behind the rails, you look over, uh, you are overcome 
by, by this great rush and sound and fury and majesty that comes from the Niagara Falls, right? And so sort of on a whim, uh, we decided to, to go, and there's a boat called Made of the Mist that you can get on and, you know, travel down into the falls. And I remember standing above, looking down at the people on the boat before and wondering, how are they not dead? Like, these forces of water are coming down so strong, and they're so close to this waterfall. A waterfall that's 825 feet wide, 200 feet deep, 37.4 million gallons of water a minute rushing down. Right? And so, so we decide to get on the boat. We go down and we're at the foot of the falls, this, this great rushing water. So I remember thinking, this is such a breathtaking scene, right? This great torrent of water coming down with great force. How can I be so close to this and yet be unharmed? Right? The only thing that comes to me is this sweet mist, this cool water that falls on my face. And so, as we think about these wise men, where they are, lying prostrate on the ground before young Jesus, if only their spiritual eyes were opened, they would see something more grand and more infinitely vast than the Niagara Falls. Right? A display of majesty and glory so incomparable that the possibility of its greatness being confined to this small child would seem impossible. And yet, here they are before God, in worship and in humble adoration. And in fact, they've been called wise men this entire time, but this is the point where true wisdom has been found. This is where they've become wise men, at the feet of Jesus, in worship and submission to him. Right? And so Matthew goes on to tell us that they opened their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, gifts of high value and worth, fitting for a king, and they freely and lavishly gave. Right? What these wise men got is that coming to Jesus, acknowledging him as king, worshiping him as the Christ, it means that declaring him that way is to dis- declare him as the greatest treasure of all. Right? Of more worth and of more value than anything we could ever possess. Right? To the point that we can count all of this world, everything it says even about us, as lost, like it, Paul in the New Testament has said this in the book of Philippians 3. He says, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. When we follow Jesus, and if we really believe that he is the source of all delight, it means that everything is on the table, right? Our our life, change, our comfort, right? Our money, our decisions, our, our families, our reputation, it causes us to be counter-cultural, right? Where the world and its, its wisdom is not what defines us or guides us. But there is something greater, Jesus, that gives us meaning and hope and life and definition and and purpose. It's why in the last verse of our text that the wise men don't go back to Herod to tell him where they found Jesus. Why? Because when we read in verse 12, it says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. God spoke to them in this dream. 
and their allegiance to King Jesus now means that they're not going to follow an earthly king or their own throne or their own kingdom. It means that Jesus makes and calls the shots, right? He is king. Their devotion, their allegiance is to this king. And so as we come to the end of this passage, as we close, consider this. When you are confronted with Jesus in your life, right, in moments of your life, what is your response? How does your heart respond to King Jesus? Are you like Herod or are you like the wise men? Because Seven Mile Road, I think when I, when I thought through this, I can tell you Jesus, more than anything, often feels like an intruder in my life. Right? It feels like he's against me instead of being for me. Right? In my mind, when I'm not thinking sanely, I've made him out to be one who steals my pleasure, right? who doesn't allow me to live and indulge in the things that I really want to indulge in and, and sort of look around the world and say, that's the stuff that I want. I want to I do that. He robs me of pleasure. Right? One who wants me to control my money and be wise and my giving in a way that makes me feel constrained. Right? One who allows suffering and sickness to happen in my life as some sort of twisted project to ruin my spirit. Right? Who calls me to live justly. Right? To, to be true to the vows that I have taken. To love those who, who wrong me. In my mind, if I were king of my life, I think that life would be just a lot easier. Right? There's no one to sort of go to or be accountable to. And in some sense, when I look at Herod, I, I say, man, I, I really get why you're responding with such defensiveness to Jesus. Like, why, why would you want any other king to rule your life and to call the shots? And I think it's because when we think about Jesus, when we think about this king, he is a king who is for us. Right? He is a good king. God and a good king, and if that is true, right, if, if God and Jesus is actually for us, then that should change everything. Right? We know that he is for us. How? Because as, as Jesus grows up, as he, as he goes into adolescence and adulthood, as he gets into ministry, and he turns 33 and a half, what happens? He dies for us. Right? He's hung up on a cross for us. He's for us, right? He is for us, dies on a cross that we might have salvation. And so if, if Jesus didn't come for us, we would be ruined and we, we would know no better but ruin and destruction. And so sin has so clouded our vision, right, that we don't fully realize the weight of sin and how it destroys us. We think that being the ruler of our own lives is the way to, to true happiness and joy, and so the great and wonderful news is that, that this small child, right, in Jesus, who is God himself in the flesh, has come to deliver all of us from our sin, from our sadness, from our brokenness, the chains that bind us to give us life in him. Right? If this newborn king is for us, wants to save me, deliver me, who, who loves me and is for my good, wouldn't the best thing for me to be to relinquish my power and let God invade every part of my life because he knows what's best, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't the news of Jesus' arrival have been the best news for Herod to hear, 
Right? Wouldn't that have been wonderful news? And instead, he is defensive and he steps on the throne and says, no, I rule my life. He forfeited his soul for his own throne, for his immediate temporary pleasure and glory. Right? If, if today this, this king is battering down your defenses, if he's scaling the strong and stubborn walls of your fortress, know that he doesn't do it as an oppressive conqueror who wants to ruin you or to take away your joy or your fun. Know that he's doing so as the gracious shepherd who holds all the blessings of life and longs to give them to you eternally. Right? He knows the greatest thing that you have and can have is found not in you indulging, not in you being the throne on the throne of your life, not in you acquiring and, and pursuing sin, but it's in Jesus. And so this, this morning, if you don't know Jesus, would you follow the wise men into the house where Jesus is? Right, come face to face, eye to eye with Jesus. See the all-powerful, infinite king who's lowered himself to earth to pursue you, you as a person, to bring you to himself that he might save you? Would you allow him to rule your life, to rid your sin, and change the course of your life forever? And if you know Jesus this morning, if you profess faith in Christ, would you see for a moment who is actually sitting on the throne of your life? Uh, who is actually king? Is Jesus your delight Right? If tomorrow your life went into ruin, if everything was done tomorrow, right, would Jesus still be enough for you? So for all of us, we'll fail a million times, and we might fail a million times when we walk out the door today. Right? We'll try to climb back up on our thrones and take power. Right? In all of our failures, and all of our mess-ups and hang-ups, while Jesus calls us to pursue him, he also calls us to receive his grace and forgiveness. And so this morning, he is even seated at the right hand of the throne of God, praying for us, interceding for us. So this holiday season of joy that's marked by joy and gladness, know this, a true joy is found in knowing Jesus and being forgiven and knowing the King and being known by him. Let's pray.